And welcome back for another episode of the IMMP, the Internet. I was going to say international. You did. You started the, to. Into, well, if we need a name change, that'll work. The Intermillennium Media Project. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And, uh, you know, Ian, I was thinking that tonight I was going to have you come out and start doing the podcast and to start talking. And then I'd have one of our crew bring my... <laughs> microphone out and uh, and set it up and then i'd join you for the the second uh part of that but then i realized uh part of my setup is the computer so nobody would hear anything you said at the beginning and that that kind of limits the availability of a podcast oh absolutely uh we're, so, we're continuing the theme from last time though yeah this is um apart from our tron episodes this is the closest we've come to a part two or a two-part a podcast. Pardon me, I'm now just trying to compare this to Tron for a moment. <laughs> oh, that opens a hole. There's a whole Venn diagram <laughs> I'm not ready to, to peer into just yet. But last week we talked about the album Stop Making Sense by Talking Heads. Which made very little sense at times. <laughs> but that made so much sense to me as a college student in 1984. So today we are talking about the film Stop Making Sense. By Talking Heads and a director, Jonathan Demme. And the album was, in many ways, a, a soundtrack album for the, the concert film. It's kind of odd, but the film is its own thing. I was going to have us talk about both as one podcast, and then as we got into the album, I realized, no, they are different things. We have to talk about them separately. The film is very different. I, the... That was just a very different experience than listening to the album at first. And it starts from moment one. There's something about just the way it opens. It feels like you're coming into the middle of a a documentary or a how the band got formed kind of stories. <laughs> this feels like a crescendo moment in some other piece of film. Oh, that's interesting. It starts at somebody else's... High point. Yeah. Somebody else's climax. Like, I feel like I'm supposed to have sat through 45 minutes of watching this band get to the point of their big performance, because you're winding up seeing so much of the the initial setup. They start with a bare stage. They start with camera work that is showing you actually peering past David Byrne into the uh, people waiting in the wings to bring stuff out. And the first four songs, they're rolling out the pieces and the different members of the band incrementally. And it feels, this feels like the climactic moment of a How We Got Started movie instead of the start of their hour and 45 minute performance. You know, if, um, if someone were making a, a biopic about Talking Heads... It definitely would follow that pattern, and eventually you would get to this, and this would have not be the final act. It would be, um, it would be 
later in the movie. I'm thinking of uh, the last like musical biopic that we saw, uh, a Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, where it was all leading up to the giant uh, Live Aid uh, concert in the stadium. Exactly. This feels like just that stadium performance in some ways, and that that caught me off guard. It's also just interesting to see a thing that has immediately a very distinct visual style to go along with its distinct musical style. But the visual style is this mix of being extremely precise and also looking extremely improvised. Oh, uh, what parts of it seemed improvised to you? There's a lot of the movement, a lot of the setup. It feels like it's being constructed in the moment. It feels like, oh, we need this thing over here. And they're bringing it in, like figuring it. Like, there was parts of it that felt like it was coming together so naturally and like, oh, people are showing up, kind of just joining in as they go. But I could also tell this is all precisely timed and everything is waiting in the wings for the moment. The construction element of it just threw me like that. And that, I think, really shows how it was conceived as, as live theater. And this was a theatrical event. And uh, a lot of that was David Byrne's design. He gets credit for designing this for the stage. And, and yet, if it were shot differently, it could have seemed extremely polished, extremely seamless, and all fitting together. And I think Jonathan Demme very intelligently shows that process happening because it is part of the theatrical experience that he's trying to capture he's not just trying to capture these musical performances he's trying to capture this experience that was uh, the performance uh that the talking that talking heads gave on this tour oh yeah and jonathan demi is just an amazing director he's directed you know a number of feature films sadly he has already passed away but he is especially known for and good at uh rock and roll related and concert film direction he just knows how to capture that energy so well i'm i'm sad that you weren't able to join us at the rock and roll hall of fame last year when we went because he directed some of the films that are presented there and it just shows that this is not a fluke he knew how to handle rock and roll concerts or, or musical concerts as a subject for filmmaking that was in 2019 you went (laughs) <laughs> yes, it was. I said 2020, didn't I? You said last year. And yeah, it, well, you're right. Yeah. It's it's now the, what, 15th month of, of 2020. So. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, you're right. That was the fall of, of 2019. We went to uh, to Cleveland to the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. I wish I could have joined you on that. Yep. We'll get, we'll get back there sometime. I like That'd that be cool. Plan. But I can definitely tell this is like, this was his wheelhouse because he visually they know where to point the camera for a lot of this. They know what the focus is. They know what's going to pull a visual that is striking and fits the mood of each song. And one of the, uh, one of the decisions that has to be made even minute to minute in a, a concert film is, do they want you to be in the audience at this concert or do they want you to be on stage? And Demi did a really good job of mixing that and finding the right moments. There's I mean, a lot. There's a lot more on stage than there is in audience. I think. Right. 
but that also fits because you get to see some of these movements and some of these changes between songs and the distinctions very closely. And I could see that if you were pulled back a little too far, it would blur a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. And my understanding is that this was not just a single performance that they shot, that they shot this over a few different performances to get long shots and stage shots. And they put those together into this film. Oh, it's very seamlessly edited yeah. then. It, it never feels like you're watching different moments. It feels like you're always watching the same performance. And I think that's one of the benefits of using the digital sound system that they used, which again was a kind of an innovation at the time. Um, that it allowed them to edit the sound in a way that matched that selection of of image. You know, we've talked about the bit the nuts and bolts of how this this film was put together. Um I've got to ask just generally, what did you think? What was your impression of this? Well, I don't want to give our final answers too early, but... Oh, that's true. This was definitely a different experience than the song is on its own. There was a lot more... uh, There was a lot more songs, just in general. And they were in a completely different order than the, the album. Which means that last time when we were talking about the album, we wound up trying to figure out where there might be a through-line narrative. And I felt like that vanished with the order from this. Yeah. Each of these are distinct vignettes that are kind of talking about similar things. But I I didn't feel the need to make a cohesive narrative across them. Because adding visuals, each was telling their own thing. and placed in the orders they are they are they're detached from each other but also cohesive yeah that's very well put i think there's there's less of that drive to turn the uh the set list into some kind of an overarching story because we've already got this concert to watch and there's so much happening there and there are characters being played in a way right out there right there on stage uh and you know, sitting through the movie as a unit is a different thing in my experience than listening to the album over and over and having it turn into a story in my head. Uh, but you're right. The, the, the expanded set list that you get from the movie and the different order, it certainly erases the narratives that we came up with for the album. And in many ways, it, it, the fact that it's a film means we don't have to do that. Oh, yeah. The other thing that really surprised me is the rest of the band is very excellent. They are skilled. I can see their performance. They're able to move any single one of the members of this band. The way they move on a stage can draw your eye. But David Byrne does not seem human at times with the way he moves about a stage. This man was developed by the Jim Henson Creature Shop. It is... This is a human... (laughs) This is a human with with a vestibulo-ocular reflex. His head will stay stationary like a cat's while you move his body around. I don't understand how he exists. (laughs) And conversely, when he's doing that first number, uh, Psycho Killer, which is the same first first number, the opener, his his head is doing this weird chicken i'm gonna mess up my audio by trying to replicate it this weird back and forth chicken thing well that's exactly the reflex crazy and and 
It's he, he, oh, you're saying his head is staying put and his body is moving around exactly it, as opposed to I, I looked, it, looked to me it, like he was moving his body. It's a better. thing. It's a thing the animal kingdom will do <laughs> if they don't have the ability to move their eyes independently of their head. Their head will stay stationary like a steady cam. Oh, while their so body it's moves. the chicken steady cam. It's the chicken steady cam effect. He's the only human <laughs> I've ever seen demonstrate it like that. It is wild. This oh, I like that. he does not seem real because he's just like wiggling all over the place and still staying with mic technique the entire time he falls on the floor and is singing up into a mic at one point or just dropping the mic stand and singing down into it there's just like watching him move around means that his body his motion is adding impact on top of the words and that's just a layer I was not ready for. Sometimes I get the impression like he'll watch concert footage by The Who and he'll say, oh, when they're really into it, they'll throw their instruments around and destroy them on stage. And then he'll, oh, wait, if I'm singing, I'm my instrument. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> and he starts throwing himself around the stage. <laughs> also, every si- the, that stage must lighting must have been extremely hot. Oh, I bet it was. But he's also doing things like all this dancing. He also runs laps around <laughs> this with how close the camera gets sometimes. There were various moments I thought David Byrne was going to break out into a Gatorade ad in the middle of his concert because he's got this like just sweat dripping off of him as he works. This feels like like I'm supposed to go get him like a lemon lime Gatorade or something. Cause <laughs> I just expect the logo to pop up. This is advertisement material. There's quite a stretch in that first act where, you know, he and uh, Tina Weymouth next to him on bass and their backup singers, they're just either marching or running in place through the entire song. It's like, we don't know what to do. So we're going to run. If we can't run, we're going to march. He literally runs laps yeah, around he runs the laps, entire yeah. stage. More than one lap at one during like a mid song, and I'm like, "What? Not human? What's going on here?" But that physicality adds to this music because this music is. I I took, I went through and I actually gave a positive or a negative, just a a straight up or down whether or not I liked each song. Oh, cool. And I have five songs I gave no to, one song I gave a confusion to, which is both, <laughs> and everything else got a good. There were more good songs, I felt, in the, in the concert than there were just on the album. Do you have a, a favorite that is in the, the film, but not the album? I'd have to listen to it again to really choose a favorite. Yeah. They, they do flow from one to the other very nicely. There's a break between each, but they're not, it's not too hard a break, I feel. Yeah, it's a well-assembled set list. There's so, no jarring transitions. Really. Yeah, there's no jarring transitions. And that means that it was a little hard to keep, like, okay, I, it was hard to completely finish processing one song before the next started. Yeah. So I'd have to watch this again to really know which one I liked best of the new things. But just musically, there was a lot going for it, and they used all the pieces that I'd heard in only one song before, somewhere else a slightly different way, so that you got a wide range, and they 
nothing felt unitasker in their entire setup. Yeah, you get a better sense of how full and rich this band they assembled for this tour, this uh, Stop Making Sense tour. And I do think that the the certainly the audio mix that we were listening to when we uh, talked about the album is different. That was, I think, digitally remastered. And I'm pretty sure that even the, the vinyl LP that I listened to so many times the mix was a little bit different than the audio mix for the uh, the film. And I think that part of that is to make those transitions work better for a film. But unlike some concert movies, there weren't these breaks with the front man talking with the audience and, and presenting a lot of other stuff. It was just music, music, music. Yeah. Through the whole thing. It was... <laughs> it was nonstop and... He's singing a lot in every single thing except for the one song with of the Tom Tom Club. Oh, the uh, Genius of Love, the boyfriend oh, yeah. song. I always thought that was a weird one, or an interesting one, I should say, to throw in here as a counterpart to I've Got a Girlfriend, this Tom Tom Club song about the... This seems like a sweet song about the boyfriend, and then it's about cocaine and insanity and such oh yeah that that <laughs> that that song hits right around the time like if this was an anime that would be the non-canon beach episode just slamming <laughs> into the narrative like a truck but an but a welcome truck that breaks up the narrative <laughs> there's also i was surprised as they build this set they pull out all the sections they've got the drums in the middle on a large riser they've got the other percussion on another on one on a riser to one side, the synths on a riser to the other, and the big black panels that they drop in the back, which they're using as projector screens. It's not very complex of a set, but they use it very well, and the few times they pull out props or costuming things, they are very prominent here. There's not a lot of pieces to the Talking Heads Lego set, but the sticker sheet that it comes with to be able to decorate everything is really big. <laughs> yeah, they do some interesting things with that that projection, especially in the second act when they're the 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 giant like they live text signs that are projected in red and, and white or the the strange shadow and light things they're doing with with bright spots and handheld spots oh yeah I, I assume that they're doing rear projection for the images that they're popping up i think they they must be so because it's, such, wise. it's so different from the the shadow stuff they're doing later with the front lighting but they're throwing light on it from the front they're throwing images on it from the back they're pulling in side lights for the final acts but they've got a lot of colored lights, so they'll just color tone an entire song. I mean, Swamp was fun on the album. <laughs> Swamp is absolutely the Goblin March song when it's just <laughs> bathed in red and everyone's like arm swing, high, high knees, just marching along during all the highs. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, this is this is visuals purely designed to add to the aesthetic of everything. And this was a live concert film, but it's important to note that this was also the, the heyday of MTV and the music video, or MTV when it actually played music videos. And that combination of the visual aesthetics and the music is what really 
was um, was pioneered by and what uh, by bands like Talking Heads and what they really made their mark with. And it's it's not surprising. In some ways, it's almost a little bit disappointing how in their most popular songs in this film, the aesthetics that they use from in, in the film are directly from the music video. And I'm thinking mainly about um, Once in a Lifetime, which is the song that we uh, we learned that you were most familiar with from its its uh, official music video. Oh, yeah. And here they go for the same aesthetic, some of the same dance moves. He puts on the glasses just like he's wearing in, in the, the music video. It's all very, very similar. It would probably be disappointing to their audience in 1984 if they didn't refer- reference that very popular music video. But it seemed like it brought the film as a film to a halt and said, oh, remember that music video, too? Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. That music, the fact that they reference that music video is the one piece of through line transition I saw. Yeah. He comes out in the jacket and shirt, uh, in the, the shirt and pants, but as it goes and he changes his costume a little over time, he wears some ill-fitting suits early on. The suit that he wears for that with the glasses on, the cord holding the glasses is really oversized, so you can see it from a distance. The suit is bunching up on his arms because it's a little too long for him. There's something very much kid dressing up to in like his father's suit to to play adult for a moment. Oh, you're right. And when he then comes out after the Tom Tom Club in the big rigid square suit, which <laughs> I take it from the logos and everything is the iconic look for this tour. Absolutely. It's very much like suddenly it started to fill out. And this like look he was doing locks in for a moment and he he's moving around in it. But it's also like the anti-chibi. His body is this big bulky thing and the head's tiny. And it's got this aesthetic of just like being out of place, but it's the one through line of him kind of looking like a kid playing adult throughout the entire thing with the movements and the the wardrobe that's the one through line i could pick up across any of the songs and it's interesting that you make some of those references because the explanation you can read in a lot of places for that look for that final part of the movie uh goes back to uh uh japanese no theater oh the big square boxy costuming to make the actors into iconic figures and you can tell from a hundred yards away. Oh, what this here's what this person is playing. You're right. It's this giant suit isn't just this box he's wearing, but it is locking him into this role that he's playing, literally and figuratively. Your David Byrne has evolved into a Minecraft Steve. <laughs> he also like does what I can only describe as, as a moth dance with a lamp at one point, which is one of the only instances of props they pull out, but that one's very interesting. Yeah, the lamp dance is is kind of odd. That's but, that song is one of probably the contenders for the songs I liked. Yeah, the bet uh, out of this. Uh, you asked me earlier, and I'm I'm still thinking in the back of my head now. The third song, or maybe that one with the lamp dance. That is, um, this must be the place. Also this called uh, naive melody. 
both of those are very excellent. Yeah. And I think those might be the two contenders for best song that's only in the film. Yeah, I'd probably put those up there as well. They're both really good. But there's just something about that. We don't need a lot on here, but we're going to really give each one of these a feeling and a tone. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of the craziest movements he had was during Life in Wartime, which just made the chaos and the the nervousness that that song seems to have really pop because he looks like he's twitching around nervously. Yeah, that that really does. It underscores my take on that song, which is that we're seeing an in, we're hearing an interpretation of the world from somebody who is not necessarily stable and interpreting it well. And he, the way he acts so crazy in the, in the, on stage seems to emphasize that. Or being able to see slippery people and him actually have dance moves mirrored back and forth with the, cor- with the chorus, just to emphasize the call and response aspect, not just with the words, but with them physically mirroring each other's movements, adds to that again. It doubles down on the same concepts you'll get from the audio alone. Yeah, and and to go along with that call and response, which is very much a gospel sort of technique, so much of the presentation, and again, we're focusing on on David Byrne's performance uh, because he's front and center so much, so much of his appearance and his his technique and his movement, it really is like a, a charismatic revival meeting. I guess that it's a yeah. religious ritual, and and he's getting to a point of frenzy at that point. I and, didn't read that quite the same way. Oh, but that's I get interesting. What you mean. And there's so much is often said about musical performances and rock concerts, especially as a kind of group ritual. And this, there's so much visual and behavioral reference. It seems to me to that sort of you know, Christian tent revival, and being overcome by the spirit, the weird jerky movements and the, 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 the glossolalia that you get in some of the lyrics in some of these songs. I don't think it's an accident that a lot of these songs are from their, what had been their most recent studio album, which is called Speaking in Tongues. Okay. <laughs> Not, now, with that context, I absolutely get what you're talking about a little bit more. And there's one particular song I wanted to reference. Oh, it was uh, it was during Once in a Lifetime. Oh, yeah, okay. And so during Once in a Lifetime, he's got these points where he's got his arms raised up to either side. It seems like a very ecclesiastical kind of gesture. Hmm. That that made um and you know, we made note of all that, the call and response and the gospel flavoring of a lot of the music when we talked about the album, and so much of that seemed emphasized by the behavior on stage. I will admit there was a few moments where the amount of visuals got disorienting to me yeah some of the some of the strobe effects some of the camera cuts made me feel dizzy and dizzying works as an experience with this but that doesn't mean it's a comfortable viewing experience in that sense now one of the the, one great disappointment for me is that i never did see this in a theater only seen this um on tv or on tape and I was kind of saving talk, uh, Talking Heads Stop Making Sense 
for the next time the Alamo had a screening of the movie because they do that. They had a wolf and wild there where once a year or so they would have a screening of this with the way things are going. I didn't want to you know keep waiting for that, but I'd still be interested in going to see this on a big screen. Oh, on with, a- with, with the, the disorienting visuals be a little too much on a big screen. I can't tell sometimes having a wider viewpoint this is getting into like the technicals of how people watch stuff. Sometimes having the wider area will mean that the transition is filling the entirety of your focus, which means that there's no high contrast. It's the the flashing oh. between a static amount of color in one area and a changing amount of color in another. But sometimes it means that there is no steady point for which you can focus elsewhere, which means that if it is disorienting you because it's own because it's changing and moving you have nothing to stabilize yourself with okay so there's some parts like the flashing i might be better with other people might have more problems with there's some parts of the movement that might be way more disorienting Mm. when the camera swings around where without someplace else to look it would just be head spinning that makes sense that's that's as much pulling in like user interface and warnings <laughs> and warning light design as it is actual cinematography, but it's one of those things where there's a lot of things here that feel like they're they're referencing warning lights. There's sireny effects in terms of their lighting. There's washes of red that feels like there's times when I feel like I heard a klaxon <laughs> just because they would put this energy of momentum and visual. But the song never had that klaxon in it. That's just what's supposed to go with flashing lights and people marching. Huh? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> that's that's the that's the tone. Swamp becomes the boats going down, and no, that's not what the song sounds like. But the visuals <laughs> are reading that clearly. Is there any number where the performance on stage was the biggest surprise to you? Tom Tom Club was that? Oh, yeah, that's yeah, that's true. That's not on the uh, the original album, and it's got yeah. a very different visual aesthetic. Yes, and that's also one of those points where you can tell everyone else is moving a lot and is being physically active and animated, but without Burn there, you can actually see them do that for once comparatively. Uh-huh. He he's at twenty two and everyone else is at eleven, and that contrast makes them seem static in comparison at times making flippy floppy is a song that i think would have fit really well on the album i think it was just cut for for um for time when they uh, originally made the, the vinyl lp but it was the one song where they really emerged from that gospel sound that so many of these songs have in the background to really showing that this is a funk band that they put together for this tour. Oh yeah, this is funk. A lot of, of funk and soul, especially across the uh, the whole set list, but that song especially, and really shows you the impact that having Bernie Worrell as part of their band for this tour is making. And he's a founding member of Parliament Funkadelic. Oh. And he is really turning this into a funk band, and it works really well for so much of their music, and especially for that number. That's also the number that talks about the president being crazy, so you can talk about timeliness. Absolutely. That that one didn't land as well for me, personally. No? No. I Maybe I was just not ready for it, but it, it just didn't click at any point the same way. 
But I definitely thought this is well-produced. It's just not landing for me. But that's the thing. Like, there's, there is so much more funk. There is so much more, I want to say, rhythmic texture. They just have a lot more going on. They use all the pieces, again, differently. Kind of like, you know, there's another set of instructions. Just check the website. You can build two more models with these pieces, with these parts. <laughs> but the album itself is, the songs are actually a little more coherently the same. They're a little more similar on the album. There's more variety in the performance on the stage. True. It, it's broken up with songs that didn't make the album to give you more texture back and forth. Mm-hmm. In addition to the fact that you've got the visuals, which vary from song to song. And I do think that that's an example of how, what I think a, a fair amount of New Wave was doing in the early 80s, but especially bands like Talking Heads, which was bringing together so many different influences, gospel and funk and rock and you know, world music and so many different, th- and, and art rock so many different things, and they were bringing it together in a way that also included style and visuals, and rock and roll's always done that, but doing it in a way where it was it was seamless and you couldn't really separate them. Anybody listening to that album in, in 1984 would be picturing David Byrne in the big suit, just because they've seen him on MTV and, and clips from the, the movie, and it was a big part of the music. It's a very well-packaged thing in terms of that, because one pulls the other into your mind. I feel like I got the second part of, of, the, of the picture <laughs> watching this. And not just because I have a picture to go with the sound now, but because I've got the rest of the pieces to this, this musical set. And as is, is often the case, I think, with, um, with a band that reaches a certain pinnacle of uh, of bringing together everything they'd been working on for a while. I mean, they had the success of the of uh, speaking in tongues. That was like their fifth studio album. Okay. Uh, so they they had a lot of popularity, but it was the one that really brought them more mainstream attention. Was uh, was speaking in tongues, and then this movie and the album that went with it really exploded their popularity. There was definitely a, a shift in what the band did after this, which a lot of which I found very interesting. But I think a lot of people who discovered them through this wanted more of this and didn't necessarily get it from their later albums. There's, there's a fair amount of stuff on those that I like, but again, it's it's a very different phase for the band than what led up to uh, to this. In some ways, there's a curse to winding up with something that has such a clear style across all of these things, which is that they assume that's the style. Yeah. When the fact that you can build style is the style. Yeah, when um, you see that kind of shifting gears with the REM, uh, a few different points in their career with Automatic for the People and Monster and other albums that are just... You can tell that they're, okay, we did that, we're going to try something different. There was something about this that... Um, that it's going to sound weird, I kind of... It made me f- want to hear them soundtrack some things. Oh, to do uh, to like uh, music score, uh, uh, movie scores. Yeah, there was something like I want to hear 
like talking heads give the soundtrack to the rise of a Batman villain character. <laughs> like they can put a whole lot of like talking points about society and life and leave you asking questions and not full of answers not, and with a lot of energy behind it. It's like, I want to hear them soundtrack. I don't know. Not the Joker, but maybe like the Penguin or someone. <laughs> now, I don't know that they ever did or that any members of Talking Heads ever did, but that's worth looking up because there are definitely other people who really had success in that late 70s, early 80s, new wave art rock world who then went on to tremendous careers in in movie scores. Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo. And Danny Elfman talking about, talking about Batman. I could certainly see Talking Heads or members of Talking Heads uh, starting to compose that way. And I guess the closest that I know of is that a year or two after this, David Byrne directed a movie. Oh, called True Stories. Okay, and I'm I surprised myself to say this. I've never actually seen it. Whoa. I was going to see it. Somebody on the school paper who went to see it and review it for the paper talked about how terrible it was. And after that, I never got around to seeing it. At this point, I'd really like to see that. And, the, and, and Talking Heads did some music for it. So I don't know. Maybe that's something that we should watch together and it'll be the first time for both of us seeing it. That might be worth it. Yeah. Yeah. It might be another Patreon uh, show. But uh, so I know that they were involved in film, or at least David Byrne was involved in film to some extent. And he has, is, as well, again, a lot of people in that kind of new wave art rock scene uh, studied art and while, while in art school got this band together. So he was always reaching a little bit beyond the music, although that's where he had the biggest success and put the most energy during that time. But just kind of tying it to that, that point from the start, this entire film feels like buildup in that sense. It feels like it's the the climax of a a a coming to this point biopic that we didn't get to see. It also feels like each song is just building energy and momentum and tension for the next and it never actually like even if when it crescendos I never felt it drop. And so the final song, I guess, is the only point where it like seems to calm down. But even then, the entire movie ends with the click track tape played for Psycho Killer rising <laughs> up and filling in the background. And the thing loops. Audio-wise, the movie loops, <laughs> and that was just sending me up a wall at the end, because I'm like, the Mad Men, they did it. It doesn't end. Oh, goodness. You're stuck in this movie now forever. Absolutely. It's interesting to think about where you've positioned this movie in a bigger story, because now I'm trying to imagine a like band biopic about Talking Heads. And I would be interested in seeing it. I honestly don't know how interesting a story it would be, though. Because I don't think there's anything especially dramatic. They all seem to be reasonably level-headed people. Without a whole lot of crises. Now they're a bunch of talented people. They got together. They formed a band. They had success. 
the band didn't stay together forever. They didn't all stay friends forever. But I don't know if there's enough story to make a movie around. Wouldn't a story about the band just somehow sidestepping drama over and over be kind of fitting though uh, we're getting into our final <laughs> points though i guess maybe we should oh you're right let, you're let's right. let's let's uh let's give it the proper wrap up here so i guess so so first a question is a screen or no screen screen good good i'm gonna actually say something bold screen over listening to the album Oh, this! If you have to choose one, if you, you have choose to choose the album, one. The, the you choose the movie. The movie I feel was a better contextual representation and devoid of the distraction of attempting to build narrative. I feel like it was a better presentation of the music than the album itself was. Uh, I can respect that. I, I can't separate any of this music from the album because that was so much my primary way of coming to it, knowing it. But I totally understand that you know, the primary artifact here is this film. And um, if you have to choose, that's the way you should experience it. I, I can totally accept that. That's good. Uh, I, of, I, of course, say definitely screen this. Uh, the movie is well worth watching. Uh, if you like the music, if you just like that, that period of time in music, if you just like interestingly and well shot uh, concert movies, definitely watch this. So that's definitely a screen from both of us. So the more interesting and, and complicated question, as usual, is revive, reboot, or rest in peace? I don't know what revive would mean for a concert movie, a comeback reunion movie? I don't know. I kind of feel like the revive would be this biopic we're describing about oh. the band, about... Because it's this continuation. Oh, it's this stuff. you're it, right. It's it, in the it, same continuity. It would be the prequel. It would be the prequel. And just, just the story of Talking Heads getting getting together, sidestepping all these points that feel like like metatextual setup for standard band biopic drama. And it just they just like deal with the problem and don't wind up in any issues with it. Like, we're not going to have money for this. Oh, Okay. Go out and make a bit of money and buy the thing, and then you go to the, the performance, and you're okay. It's like, like, oh, we're not all on the listing here. Okay, go talk to the printer. Get that fixed. Okay, we're okay. So everyone gets their credits. Okay. Like, you could just have this almost fun with the story element of that, but it feels like that would be the, the step to do that. And I like that. Yeah, that, that would be interesting, that, that anti-drama biopic <laughs> if not that then what i could see is a a band quote-unquote biopic that was openly and unashamedly made up here I'm, we're gonna make a movie that's the story of talking heads and their rise to success and none of it's true so here's the movie yes david byrne is an alien Oh yeah! Yes, Weymouth and Franz are secret agents. It just has to. <laughs> it, it just it just devolves into altered states like partway through <laughs> and doesn't leave, but still somehow ends with the concert. Yeah, Harrison's a mad scientist. Yeah, they're all. Oh yeah, uh, and and the um and, and Bernie Worrell is the 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 mastermind. I could see that. Just uh, you know, we're telling you, we want more stories, so we made it up. Either one of these feels like they work really well, and either one of them, I guess, is my vote. I'm intrigued by the fact that Revive 
doesn't quite work with this context. Yeah. But if I split it, if I centrifuge this into the visual styles and the music again, I very much wind up with a more bands should film their concert videos, taking cues from how this did theirs. And once again, this sounds like stuff I remember from PlayStation. This sounds <laughs> for some reason like Guitaru Man and Katamari Damasi just like blaring back at me. I think they took a lot of reference from this. So there's something about that as a, like, if you're looking for more of this, maybe that's the music to go at in my mind. So what would reboot look like for a concert movie? That's what I'm saying. Like yeah, I, I revive, we had a, have a few ideas, but yeah, I guess re- reboot reboot is but it'd be spiritual reboot. Huh? It'd be spiritual reboot. And that's okay. kind of like, I see you've you got mean. to take the visual styling of how they filmed this and apply that to a different band. Yeah. Might not land the same with a different band, but spiritual reboot of we're going to film our band the way talking heads filmed. Stop making sense. Pulling that visual cue. It's so, more take inspiration from us. So in some ways, we're what we're doing is we're rooting for the kind of reboot that we sometimes acknowledge, which is, yeah, they may not have, nobody may have made a new version of this, but this has influenced so many other things, they might as well be considered reboots. We'd yeah. like to see more reboots of this because it has so much good that it could do by influencing other other works. Exactly. Okay. I'm kind of still voting for the re- the revive because the, <laughs> either of those things sound fun. But figuring out what that reboot is is important to be able to compare them. Yeah. I in in neither sense do I think this needs to just rest in peace because it's mineable in one form or another, I think. Yeah, it's it is so influential and by definition it's not merely going to rest in peace. Mm-hmm. But for what it is and for the artifact of 1984 that it is, uh it's certainly worth coming back to and watching more. It wiggles around on stage too much to rest <laughs> in any form of peace. Yeah. <laughs> oh, All right. Well, well this was interesting approaching this same work in two different forms in the album and the film. I'm, oh, gl- yeah. I'm glad we that we split them up and I'm glad I got a chance to share these with you. This was definitely fun. This was a different a different experience than last time we did an album and different than any of the other films we've done. So together, this was a window to a media grouping that I don't think I've run into as much. I don't listen to albums as an album whole. I'm used to a singles track market of music of the digital age. I'm not a person who grew up with music videos as a thing to watch on their own. They're a thing that came up every once in a while on YouTube, but I'm not personally, I'm not a person who went out to look for them a lot. They'd come up in compilations in the background of something else, like a, like a break room at community college. There's my, my, my interaction with this type of media doesn't fit the same way it wound up impacting you. So getting a window as to how, you ran into these things is just interesting because it's not the unfortunately algorithmically uh, <laughs> driven stumble upon system I run into in my own day. So it's nice to be able to try something different on that. Yeah. The um, yeah, radio, of course, and, and even more than that, talking to friends was always the big way to discover music. But in, by the time I was in high school and in college, music video was a big 
part of that. And and MTV, that was kind of you know, background viewing when I was home. And uh, and that introduced me to a lot of music, including Talking Heads. Video killed the radio star, but <laughs> I think the search bar killed the music video star for me. So, And, you know, there's something about this movie in particular, what I was, what I was reminded of by it, has led me to what I think I'm going to pull up next time it's time for us to listen to some music for the podcast. So I already have in mind an album, or actually a series of albums, Oh, for the next time we turn our attention to music. But that, I think it'll be a while. I think uh, for our next podcast, we will be returning to television. Ooh. So I have plans for that. And that means that we will be back in a couple of weeks with uh, more tales of media from the 20th century. In the meantime, where can they find you online, Dad? Uh, you can find me, uh, you can find most uh, most places you can find me uh, under the name By Matthew Porter. So you can go to ByMatthewPorter.com. You can find me on Twitter as By Matthew Porter. You can find me on Twitch uh, as By Matthew Porter. And uh, as more things happen, I'll try to grab that name there as well. And where can people find you, Ian? I'm available on Twitter as Item Crafting, on Twitch as Item Crafting Live, and in most places I try to grab that username as well. So if you see Item Crafting, double check it's me, but probably is. And you can find the podcast on Twitter as uh, at IMMPcast. You can also find us online on the web at immproject.com. And uh, at immproject.com, you'll find links to all of our past episodes, as well as a contact page where you can get in touch with us, and links to our uh, Discord. We'd love to hear from you there as well. Uh, links to our shop if you like T-shirts and coffee mugs and other fun things. And a link to our Patreon. We really appreciate uh, any uh, support you can provide for us there. And uh, we're dropping some uh, extra bonus audio content every month there for our patrons. And the best way you can support, though, is to continue downloading and listening to let your friends know about the podcast and going out and uh, rating and reviewing the podcast. That's the best way for to other people to find uh, the podcast and to uh, for us to uh, get it out to more people. So thanks very much. However, you can support or just for listening. We really uh, appreciate it. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with uh, with more. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>